No, sometimes you need to call in the people who know what they're doing, or you at least need to read the directions. You may have had an incident like this where maybe you were trying to put together something, maybe it was a toy at Christmas time, you know, the proverbial some assembly required, or maybe it was a piece of furniture from a certain store in the Portland area, um, or something like that, where you've been trying and trying and trying to get it together, and you've been failing and failing and failing, and finally you decide you need to do something different. This has happened to me a lot. Um, I'm generally not averse to reading directions, and I do recognize that my mechanical skills are somewhat limited. I mean, I do have an engineering degree, um, but I studied water treatment and cleaning up hazardous waste, and that's generally not practical or, or, you know, for everyday life around the house. Um, but I do want you to all recognize that you do allow me to work on the tech team, which is a little bit scary. Um, <laughs> And one place where I used to think I could do my own work was with cars. I, I always had this idea that, you know, that I should be able to work on cars. Um, <clears throat> I've kind of given up on that um, over the years, but, you know, there have been some examples of, of things where things just didn't go quite right. At one point, um, I was trying to change a battery in an old car that I had and I ended up starting a small fire in the car. I'm still not sure exactly how that happened, and thankfully, I was talking with my wife about this last night, and she does not remember that incident, so um, I'm, I'm thankful for that. Also, too, there was another weird incident that happened with, with my car, with a different car, and um, Sarah and I were out at a, conf at a concert one night, and we came back to our car, turned it on, and we had no dashboard lights. I was like, oh, that's weird. And so, you know, this was at night, it was dark. We eventually kind of made our way home, um, haltingly, um, without really being able to see the speedometer at that time. Um, got home, uh, you know, went through the fuses, found out one of the fuses was, um, was blown, so I replaced the fuse. I thought, great, problem solved. Um, then, a day or two later, fuse blew again, changed the fuse. Day or two later, fuse blew again, changed the fuse. I'm like, okay, this is not just a problem with the fuse. And so I did what everybody does in this time, during this time period, right? Uh, if you have problems with your car, I looked at YouTube videos, did some internet research, pulled out my Haynes manual, um, and tried to start diagnosing this, and I could not figure out what was wrong with it. Um, and finally, I just decided, okay, I'm going to break down and take the car into the garage. And in taking it to the garage, what I found out was it was actually not a problem with the dashboard lights. There was a safety feature in our car that um, if the tail lights were not functioning properly, the dashboard lights would go out to give you a little heads up that something's wrong. Of course, they don't really tell you this, but <laughs> what I found was that um, what they found was that one of the wires in the trunk was crimped, and so it was preventing uh, the electrical circuit to the, um, to the taillights from getting completed, and the taillights were actually not functioning for like a couple weeks. Uh, so, but um, 
eventually we got that fixed. And you know, that was something I would have never been able to figure out on my own. I would have been trying and trying and trying um, over and over again to figure out what that was. But what I needed was the advice of someone who knew what they were doing. And today in our scripture passage, we see that after several missteps, several defeats, the people of Israel go to somebody who knows what they should be doing and get the right advice and get themselves set on the right track. So let's think about the story so far. Um, in what we have seen in the book of Samuel, right, a few weeks ago, the Israelites were about ready to go into battle, and one of the things that Pastor Brian noted was that Samuel, the prophet, was conspicuously absent from the narrative. The Israelites, people of Israel, decided they knew what they were going to do. They were going to grab the Ark of the Covenant, they were going to go into battle, and they were going to defeat the enemies, their, their enemies, the Philistines. We know from our study of the, of the um, passage that this is not what happened. I don't know what the Israelites were expecting. I don't know if they expected um, that the Ark of the Covenant would raise the morale of their soldiers and the people would know really concretely that God was with them and they would fight harder. I don't know if they were remembering the stories of Joshua, how Joshua marched around the city of Jericho with the Ark of the Covenant and they blew the trumpets and the walls fell down. I don't know if they were expecting lightning bolts to shoot out of the Ark of the Covenant like in Raiders of the Lost Ark and melt the faces of their enemies. I don't exactly know what they were expecting, but they were expecting something to happen. But it turns out that this was not a good idea. Right? Israel was defeated, the Ark was captured and, um, by the Philistines, and the only way they got the Ark back was that God worked to bring it back. Right? The, the people of Israel did nothing to get the Ark back. Right? God worked through that. Now, we're at a point in our story um, the text says about 20 years later, and Samuel's back on the scene. And we're going to look at how this situation, which is very similar to the one that happened before, turns out very differently because of Samuel's um, presence. And we'll do this in three phases with appropriate um, sermonic assonance here. Um, we'll talk about Samuel's appraisal of Israel's situation. We'll talk about Samuel's approach to the challenges of the people of Israel. And then we'll talk about Samuel's acknowledgement of God's work. So at the beginning of chapter 7, we see Samuel returning on the scene. There's not much fanfare. We don't know where Samuel was. He's just all of a sudden there. And we also know that this whole ordeal with the ark has had a big impact on the people of Israel. That they um, know that things have not gone the way they should have gone. And our text says that all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. <clears throat> but it doesn't seem like they quite knew what to do 
with their lament. It says they lamented, but we don't necessarily see any action on their part. And in the midst of this, Samuel delivers a prophetic message to the people. He says, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Astartes from among you. Direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. And this is, this is an interesting passage because this is one of those rare times in the Old Testament where a prophet shows up on the scene, tells the people of Israel what to do, and they actually listen to him. Right? This is usually not what happens. Time and time again in the history of Israel, prophets show up, they tell the people of Israel what to do, and the people of Israel say, yeah, we're going to go our own way. <clears throat> but, again, our text continues and says, so Israel put away the Baals and the Astartes, and they served the Lord only. So this was Samuel's appraisal of the situation. He said, look, if you are lamenting about what has happened, what you need to do is you need to focus solely on the Lord. I think this is interesting, right? Remember the context here. The, um, the last thing we've basically seen in the book of Samuel is that Israel has faced a huge military defeat. Their prized possession, the Ark of the Covenant, was captured and it was only brought back by the work of God. And yet, look at Samuel's diagnosis of this. Right? If this happened today, if, we, if our country or some other country had faced a huge military defeat, what would we do? Right? We would be you know, demanding better military leaders we would probably be holding the president accountable for this. We would be wanting to increase our military budget and build better weapons and get better training for our soldiers. Instead, what Samuel says here is that what Israel really needed to do was repent. It needed to turn back to God because salvation wasn't found in the armies of Israel. It was found in their faithfulness to God. Our text moves then to talk about um, after Samuel appraises the situation, after he points out that it is Israel's idolatry that has caused their defeat, Sam the text moves then to talk about Samuel's approaches to the challenges of his people. And Samuel immediately then faces two challenges. One is, how does he deal with the idolatry? How does he deal with the fact that the people of Israel have drifted away from the Lord and have worshiped these gods from the cultures around them? And then there's also the challenge of the Philistines who are still there. And 
As I mentioned, it's the first challenge that Samuel sees as the most important. And what Samuel does is, again, he sees the problem of idolatry, and he steps in, and he intercedes for the people. He tells the people, gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Then the people gather, they have some ceremonies, they pour out water before the Lord, they fast, they repent of their, um, of their sinfulness, and the text says that Samuel judged the people of Israel. Right? We have not seen Samuel as a judge yet. He's been seen as a prophet, um, he's been seen as someone to whom the word of the Lord has come, now Samuel is referred to as a judge. Samuel has been accepted as the leader of his people. The people are ready to follow him um, in what he says. And Samuel goes right to the heart of the matter, right to the ugly part. He doesn't gloss over things. He doesn't start out by you know, telling people what they've done well and then, you know, then easing into this, uh, the problems and then, you know, finishing up by telling them something else they've done well. He goes right in and says, look, this is the problem. And he focuses on how the people of Israel have left their first love, how they've drifted away from God. And he emphasizes that the problem with Israel is not that they are a militarily weak nation. The strength of their military doesn't matter. The problem is that they have lost their spiritual focus. Right? And this should not be unexpected for the, the people of Israel. If anyone is familiar with the book of Judges, this is the story of Israel over and over and over again. Right? Um, the people start out well. They're following a leader, Joshua, or one of the judges. They follow God. That leader dies, then they slide into idolatry, they get attacked and oppressed by some neighboring people, um, they cry out for repentance, God raises a judge, they follow, um, the, uh, they follow God during the lifetime of the judge, and then the whole cycle repeats itself. This is the story of a lot of Israel's history, that um, their leaders are often set the tenor for the people. Jesus, too, recognized this issue of our spiritual focus. If you remember from the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' first recorded sermon in the Gospel of Mark begins, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Right? Jesus recognized, too, that our problem, our biggest issue, is that we sometimes, maybe more than sometimes, often lose our spiritual focus. And just like Samuel, Jesus realized that this is the primary need of the people, that we need to refocus our spiritual lives on him. Of course, there are other pressing needs. Right? Um, Andrew prayed for many of those today, and we know that those are around us. Things like 
people needing food, clothing, shelter, freedom from political oppression, and so forth. But underneath all of that, underneath all of those other issues is a fact that we are under spiritual oppression because of following other gods other than the one true God. Also, um, Martin Luther, the progenitor of the Protestant Reformation, recognized this. If you've ever read Martin Luther's 95 theses, right, his first thesis is not some issue with the Pope or indulgences or something like that. His first thesis reads, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended the entire life of believers to be one of repentance, right? This is something that needs to be emphasized over and over and over again. Because as John Calvin, the spiritual father of Presbyterianism noted, our hearts are perpetual idol factories. And what are these idols? Well, Matthew Henry wrote that idols are what he called the quote, sins we love. And for ancient Israel, those sins that we love, that they loved, were the gods of the other of the surrounding lands, the Baals, the Astartes. They were impressed by these gods who were gods of military power, gods and goddesses of fertility, gods who had wrestled with death and won. And they seemed to love to give up their status as the people of God to follow the ways of the surrounding nations. They readily gave up the God who established them as a nation for the gods of other nations and tried to be like them. Okay, so that was Samuel's response to the first challenge of Israel's drifting away from God to call the people to repentance, to call them to renewed faithfulness to the one true God. But now a second challenge arises. The people are gathered together for a religious gathering. The Philistines are watching this and they're thinking, hmm, they're trying to gather together an army so they could attack us again. They see this gathering as a potential military threat. You know, the Israelites try to do the good thing. They try to gather, they try to repent, and then all of a sudden, chaos breaks out. Um, the Philistines marshal their armies and get ready to attack them. One thing I want to note here is that we have no indication that Samuel was any type of military leader. Right? He grew up in the household of Eli the priest. There's no indication that he was a, a warrior, a soldier, anything like that. Um, but he was Israel's new acknowledged leader, and so he steps into the gap, and when the people look to him for guidance, he gives it to him. We read in verses 7 and 8, and when the people of Israel heard of it, that means the Philistines gathering, they were afraid of the Philistines. The people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us and pray that he may save us from the hands of the Philistines. And it's interesting here, now, in the presence of Samuel the leader, 
the people do what they're supposed to do. Right? We had um, heard in previous sermons about the issue of how things go awry when we don't consult God. The people now realize that they need to consult God through his prophet, Samuel. They turn to God's prophet, Samuel, and they ask him what to do. And again, it's interesting what Samuel does. Samuel doesn't say, okay, everybody get their weapons. We need to organize in this way. We need to set up, you know, um, these parts of our armies here and there, and we need to get ready for an ambush here, and we need to send out scouts, and we need to do all this other stuff. He doesn't say anything like that. What Samuel's response is, he says, um, we see in verse 9, so Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Samuel makes a sacrifice to God. Again, what he, Samuel's doing here is he's showing his dependence on God. He is making that sacrifice and saying, God, hear our prayers. We're making this sacrifice to you. Be gracious to us. And then we see that God acted in verse 10. The Lord thundered with a mighty voice that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. One of the things about this victory was that there was no doubt that this was God's work. Israel was not ready for a fight. They were not militarily able to fight against the Philistines. The only reason that they won this battle was because God intervened. There could be no question that this victory was God's victory. What a difference this was from the last time the Israelites battled the Philistines back in 1 Samuel 4. There, they presumed on God's presence. They thought that God was there because the Ark of the Covenant was there and that God would be with him. They thought they could fight the battle without consulting God. They thought, maybe even, that they could be God themselves because they had the Ark with them. But for this battle, the people are looking to Samuel for leadership. And Samuel, in turn, looks for God. And instead of being, quote-unquote, practical, as we like to be in the U.S., Samuel first sees this again as a spiritual battle. This is not an issue of two armies fighting each other. This is an issue of God's people being faithful to God and doing what they're supposed to do. <clears throat> instead of being proud that they were God's people and that they had the Ark and the Covenant and God's prophet, they humble themselves before God. They make a sacrifice, and then they wait for God to act. And as so often happens in Israel's history, Israel wins the battle not because of anything they do, but because of God's mighty acts. And then, because God acts, the people are able to act. And Samuel was content to let God do the work. And then in the last part of our passage, we see that God acknowledges, Samuel acknowledges God's work. So Samuel could have 
basically taken all the accolades on himself and said, wow, what a great leader I am, right? I was able to get God to listen to me. I was able to potentially lead the army to defeat the Philistines. What he does, though, is something different. Samuel sets up a stone, right, a permanent marker, so that everyone who is in the area will know that it wasn't him, that it was God. And he calls the stone Ebenezer, the stone of help, and says, thus far, the Lord has helped us. One of the commentators I've read made a comparison between um, what happened at the end of the first battle in 1 Samuel 4 and what happened in this battle. If you remember, at the end of 1 Samuel 4, that battle ends by Eli's sons getting killed, Eli dying, and then Eli's daughter-in-law having a baby that's named Ichabod. The glory has left Israel. Now, though, Samuel sets up the stone and says, no, God has helped us. God is back. Samuel refuses to take credit for the victory and gives all the glory of God. And the result is that Israel is able to recover its territory and that they have peace. And then Samuel goes about his work as a judge for Israel. So if we look at this passage, we see the person of Samuel. Samuel fills a very unique position in this passage. Samuel fulfills the role of a prophet, calling the people to repentance. He fulfills the role of a priest, making intercession and sacrifice for the people. And he also fulfills the role of a king, leading the people into battle. And usually in the history of Israel, these are distinct roles. But during this time of crisis, they all get wrapped up into the person of Samuel. And in these roles, I believe Samuel foreshadows, or if you want to talk about it theologically, serves as a type for the greater prophet, priest, and king who is to come. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. And Samuel shows what a true leader of Israel should be like at least as far as an imperfect human can. And in upcoming chapters, we'll see a little bit of Samuel's imperfection. <clears throat> but this gives an indication of what Israel should be looking at, looking for in a leader. Right? In the next chapter, as the people of Israel look for a king, this incident shows that they should be looking for someone after God's own heart, not for someone will make them like the other nations. Also, as we see, Samuel is a model for us as well, right? For our own salvation from sin, from death, from the decay of the world. It's not on us to be able to provide our own salvation. We wait for God to work on our behalf. And that, again, comes through his son, Jesus Christ. One other 
comment I wanted to make on this passage before we close is that I paired this passage with Matthew 4, the temptation of Jesus for a reason. Um, and if I would have had, you know, 75 minutes for a sermon, I probably would have delved more into that. But um, I can do that at work, um, probably not here so much. Um, but um, I think that Samuel's actions in this passage parallel Jesus' temptations, the temptations that Jesus faced in the wilderness. Um, Henry Nouwen, in his book, In the Name of Jesus, frames these three temptations as the temptation to be relevant, right? the temptation to turn um, the stones into bread, the temptation to be spectacular, the temptation to jump off the pinnacle of the temple, and the temptation to be powerful, the temptation to take over all the kingdoms of the world. Jesus faced these, and Samuel did as well. Samuel was tempted to be relevant. Right? He was tempted to be like the other nations and seek military power. Instead, he called the people to repentance. Samuel was tempted to be spectacular. Right? The ark was still around. Samuel could have, probably with more right than Eli's sons, taken the ark of the covenant into battle. But he chose not to. He chose instead to humble himself before God, and he prayed, and he sacrificed, and he allowed God to work. Samuel was also tempted to be powerful, right? Who knows? Maybe after that battle, Israel would have taken Samuel to be their king. He had done everything a king was supposed to do, and yet he sets up a monument to God and says, no, it's God who has helped us. It wasn't me. A pastor at a church I once attended uh, in the past said that the key to interpreting the Old Testament is to be able to tell time biblically. Right? First Samuel is addressed to the people of Israel. How do we take that? How do we apply it today? Well, I think the parallel to the people of Israel in First Samuel is the church. And I think we need to remember that um, as the church... As Samuel looked to God and taught others to look to God, we need to look at Christ's message to his people. Right? Um, we are the body of Christ now on earth. And 1 Peter says that we are a royal priesthood. How are we going to respond to the word of God to us? Will we see the problems of the world mainly in pragmatic terms? Or will we look deeper and see the problems as first and foremost spiritual problems? Again, not that the practical aspects are unimportant. They are incredibly important. But we're never going to solve the physical problems of the world without looking at the underlying spiritual condition. Will we see the problems um, as not just with the world? Right? It's easy for us as the church to look out and say, well, if only the world didn't do this, if only the world was better in this area. But will we be able to see the problems in, our, in ourselves as well? 
And are we willing to hear the word of God and follow God's ways for dealing with these problems, even if they don't reflect what the people around us see as the best way of doing things, even if they seem impractical or foolish to the world around us? Are we willing to follow the one who Samuel foreshadows, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Today on the liturgical calendar that's typically used by Western Christians, we celebrate the feast day called Christ the King Sunday. And so today, let us look to Jesus as our King and live out our role as servants of the King based on the example he gave us, not on idols, the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Let us put away our idols and profess no king but Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we pray that you would change our hearts, that you would turn our hearts back to you, that we would desire a king, but that king that we desire would be the one who has been foreshadowed throughout the Old Testament your son, Jesus Christ, great David's greater son. And Father, we pray that we would commit our hearts to him and that we would seek to follow his ways, not the ways of the world, and that you would lead us and guide us by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.